Well, can I say what a great pleasure and privilege it is for me to be with you here today. Every time I think of Bakersfield, uh, I do so with a smile. Uh, I do so with thankfulness. Um, Our times with you have been very precious to Joan and myself. You've welcomed us so warmly and openly. And although you don't live in the prettiest city in the United States, you certainly live in a city that is very dear to us and that we hold high in our hearts. Let me wish you all the very happiest of New Year's. I trust as we look forward to the coming year, we will do so with expectation and anticipation in the knowledge that the Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. The Lord reigns. Let the people of God be glad. Let us pray together. Our great God and our Father, you who are the great and the awesome God, we bow in your presence to acknowledge your sovereignty, your majesty, your power, your dominion, your grace and your glory. We bow before you for you are a great God and a great King. And we bow conscious that it is only united to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we can dare to approach you. And not only, Lord, to approach you, but to do so with unfettered confidence, knowing that we come to a gracious father, to one who has loved us with an everlasting love, to one who from times eternal set his love upon us. And in your great wisdom, in your unfathomable wisdom, you devised and designed a way whereby we who were lost without hope and without God might in Jesus Christ be restored to you and in him become part not only of a new creation, but of a repristinated cosmos. We come, Lord, to worship you, for you are the sovereign Lord of the heavens and the earth. We do not live in a world dictated to and determined ultimately by mere men, because you reign above the heavens and the earth. You are the God who ordains all that comes to pass wisely, perfectly. You do so, Lord, unfathomably because your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And we would have it no other way, for we delight to know that our times are in your hands. The hands that flung stars into space, the hands that were nailed to the cross of Calvary, For our redemption, in those hands we find ourselves today. We pray, Lord, that you would remember us all for good. You know our circumstances, our needs, our hopes, our fears, our sadnesses. You know those of us for whom this past year has been a trial, even a tribulation. You know, Lord, that many of us perhaps fear what lies before us. We pray that by the ministry of your spirit, you will impress upon us that our times are in your hands. 
and that you will go before us and with us and that you will direct all our paths to the praise of your glory. We pray, Lord, that into the sadness and misery of our world, the light of the gospel of your Son might shine. We pray for our brothers and sisters at Radius who are seeking to equip and train young men and women to go to the ends of the earth. Lord, we ask your protection for them. We pray that you will provide for all their needs. We pray it will be a place where the Lord God Almighty is honoured and where young men and women are not only intellectually equipped, but spiritually moulded to be men and women that you can safely use in the building of your church and the extension of your kingdom. We pray, Lord, for our brothers and sisters who find themselves in this world facing immense hostilities and harm. Many of our brothers and sisters in China and North Korea are enduring great trials. And we ask, Lord, that you will be with them and that you will sanctify to them their deepest distresses. We thank you for them, for they, Lord, are truly the great ones in your kingdom. Remember our persecuted brothers and sisters, Lord. And as you refine them and sanctify them, may their oppressors be converted to Christ. And if not converted to Christ, may you remove them from the face of the earth. Lord, we look to you. How thankful we are that there is nothing in all creation hidden from your sight. You search the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. You see every struggle, Lord, that we have, every burden that we carry. You see every failure. Even our hidden failures are known to you, even our grievous sin. But you are rich in mercy. And in our Lord Jesus, there is a fountain filled with blood into which we can be plunged and washed clean and made new. Lord, we ask as we turn to your word that you will meet with us, that you yourself, Holy Spirit, will be our teacher. Lord, remove every distraction from our minds. Enable us to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. Help us, we pray. We are poor and needy, but we look to you. And we ask now, Lord, for the illuminating help of the Holy Spirit. And we ask all our prayers in the name of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to the first chapter of John's Gospel and then to the 11th chapter of John's Gospel. We will be thinking especially on John 11 verses 33 to 38. I've given a title um, to this address, um, The Emotional Comfort that flows to us from the incarnation. 
my thinking being that we rightly dwell upon the unsurpassable wonder, the inexplicable wonder of the eternal word, God's only begotten son becoming flesh for us, marvelling that the uncontainable one becomes a zygote in a virgin's womb. But I wonder if we give sufficient time of thought to pondering the implications of the incarnation for the life of Christ and for the lives of his people. So we read the first five verses in John chapter 1 and then verse 14, and then we'll move on to verse 33 of John chapter 11. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, and, and if your English version doesn't have an and, put an and in, and, unimaginably, John is saying to us, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in John 11, you'll know the passage well. Jesus has heard that his friend Lazarus is sick. He delays going to Lazarus. And when he eventually comes, Lazarus has died. And Lazarus's sisters, Martha and Mary, are beside themselves with grief. And Martha meets with Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And that gave rise to Jesus' glorious words. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Martha goes and and finds Mary and, and Mary says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, verse 33, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he? who opened the eyes of the blind man, also have kept this man from dying. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And you'll know how the narrative continues. He goes and by the power and grace given to him through faith by his father, He brings forth Lazarus from his death into life. So I want to think with you for a time 
about the emotional comfort that flows to us out of the incarnation, the becoming in flesh of the Son of God. Let me begin by asking you a question. Who in the Bible speaks these words? I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Who spoke those words, do you think? Well, some of you at least will know that they come from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Where do you find them? You find them in the second servant song of Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 4. Whereas the servant of the Lord, as he surveys his life and the mission entrusted to him by his father, says, I've laboured in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. I was asking my daughter-in-law this afternoon in London, who spoke those words? And she said, well, I really don't know. I said it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And she said, well, how on earth could our blessed saviour speak words like that? And I said to her, if he couldn't and didn't speak words like that, he couldn't be our blessed saviour. And more of that in a moment. Another question. If someone were to ask you later today, what is the only spring of present grace and future glory in your life as a Christian? What would you respond to them? What's the only spring of present grace and future glory in your life? John Owen unsurprisingly coming from me, but John Owen, the great English Puritan, wrote this glory, the glory of the incarnation, the glory of the becoming in flesh of the Son of God is the glory of our religion, the glory of the church, the sole rock whereon it is built, the only spring of present grace and future glory. I wonder if that's how you think of the hypostatic union, that remarkable union in Jesus Christ of Godhead and manhood, of deity and humanity. This, says Owen, is the glory of our religion. It's the glory of the church. It's the sole rock whereon it is built. It is our only spring of present grace and future glory. And Owen is reminding us that the humanity of Christ is a true humanity. If he didn't take a true humanity to himself, if he didn't actually become flesh, but simply embraced flesh as I might embrace this, this jacket that I'm wearing to take it off later in the day or at some other time. He could never be 
our Saviour. That's why in the early years of the Christian church, in the first four or five centuries, the church was as resolved to defend the true humanity of Christ as it was resolved to defend the true deity of Christ. The church understood that if Jesus Christ had not become truly one with us in our humanity, if his humanity was nothing more than an appearance, if it was simply a charade, then we didn't have anyone who was standing with us and for us as one of us. If you read through the Gospels, you will notice before long at all how in a multitude of ways they underscore the true humanity of our Saviour. We find him weary. We find him distressed. We find him disappointed. We find him sleeping. We find him eating. In a whole multitude of different ways, some of them just almost in the passing, we we are confronted with the true true humanity of our Saviour. And that's why I want to look with you at these verses in John chapter 11. Because John uses language here that actually the English text does not adequately translate for us to help us. John uses language that vividly, even dramatically, highlights the true humanity of our Saviour. And in doing so, we are given a profound insight into the emotional life of our Lord Jesus. The Jesus who confronts us at the tomb of Lazarus is the Jesus who became incarnate in the virgin's womb. And I want simply to notice three things with you in the text and then draw three or four applications or uses. I don't often actually preach this way. Normally, in the way my head works, we're all wired differently. The uses and the applications are woven into the exposition because often the exposition is the application. I I weary when I meet Christians who who say, oh, I, I want more application. And actually, I'm saying to them, actually, you need more exposition. You need to understand the theology of the gospel, because in the theology of the gospel, there you encounter the great application of the gospel. But that's for another day. Notice three things with me in the text. First of all, in verse 33 and verse 38, we are told that Jesus was deeply moved. Deeply moved. Now, that is a C plus translation. I'm not a linguist at all. I I love languages, but I'm not good at languages. But that really is not an adequate translation of the verb. Actually, deeply indignant would be a B plus translation. Or if you follow Benjamin Warfield, Jesus blazed with anger. Jesus comes face to face with death, that unholy intrusion 
into God's good creation. The wages of sin is death. Remember God said to Adam, in the day you eat, that will be the day you die. Now there was nothing magical about the tree. God was giving Adam a probation, a test. Adam, trust me, trust my bare word. Believe me. But Adam chose to believe the lie of the evil one. And death came into the world. And it's as Jesus confronts this unholy intrusion that has brought such grief and sadness and bitterness into the lives of those who were near and dear to him. He actually blazes with anger. Now, death ushers the child of God into the immediate presence of God. But that doesn't stop the Apostle Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, speaking of death as the last enemy. There was a time in our Saviour's life when he came under the power of death. He died to sin, not only for sin, but to sin. He came under the power of death, that coming under its power, he might defeat it. And here we find our Lord Jesus confronted by the the expulsive power of sin and the misery and bitterness that it brings in its wake. And he's deeply indignant. He blazes with anger. His soul is convulsed within him. The language is that strong, Embram Albai. He blazes with anger. Here is a truly human Jesus Christ. Not a plaster cast saint who, who walks serenely throughout life, untouched by the the vagaries of life. You know, in the ancient world, the great desire of the Greek world was to be apathetic, without passions, to go through life serenely, untouched by danger, difficulty, trial, sadness, sorrow, brokenheartedness, misery, the death of loved ones. You just serenely walked your way through. Oh, Oh my, what a great man that is. Well, here is the greatest man who ever walked the face of this earth. He blazed with anger. He was deeply indignant. Indignation and anger belong to the fabric of true humanity. Now, our problem, of course, is that that so easily drifts into self-righteousness. That's why Paul is to write in Ephesians 4, be angry, but don't sin. Our problem is that in our anger, we so easily give vent to sin, to selfishness and self-righteousness. But there is such a thing, of course, as godly anger, righteous anger. We should not be ashamed of being righteously angry when we see God's good creation being misused and abused when we see God's own creatures, his own image bearers inside the womb and outside the womb being abused and used for social convenience. We should righteously blaze with anger. And John is 
is highlighting, he is accenting for us the true, real, substantial humanity of our Saviour. And then secondly, in verse 33, do you notice, we're told that he was greatly troubled. So actually just one word in the Greek. And this word, tarasso, was used of a sea that was turbulent. Remember the man who goes to the pool of Bethesda in, in John 4, and he says, well, when the waters are stirred, he says, before I can get there, someone else gets before me. And John is again highlighting that the emotional life of our Lord was not even and untroubled. Later in John 12, he will say, my soul is greatly troubled, exceedingly troubled, even unto death. I think we often have a false almost platonic understanding of what a Christian should be. Now, God has made us all very different. He's, he's made us temperamentally very remarkably diverse. But I think sometimes we, we fall into the trap of thinking, oh, I, I just wish I were more, more even, more serene. And, and there's something I, I would understand in that and almost echo it in my own life. But we belong to a saviour whose emotional life was not even and serene. There was turbulence. He knew great heights and he knew great depths. And in these small ways, John is, is impressing on us. You see, you have a saviour who has come and united himself truly to our humanity. And then the third thing you'll notice in those great words, the shortest verse in the Bible, the Bible's never written in verses. You know, verses didn't come till, I think, the mid-1550s. Uh, and chapters didn't happen until uh, later on in the 13th century. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. The death of Lazarus did not leave him stoical. He wept. And the point I want to make here is that he wept openly. He didn't hide his emotions. He wasn't a buttoned up man. He expressed his humanity truly. I'm not sure we're, we're good at doing that. I think too often we we feel that we're unable to express our true humanity. Because if we did, people might think less of us. I, I'm very guilty of that. I think often, Lord, if people knew remotely what I was really like or what I was really feeling, they'd never invite me anywhere. John tells us that Jesus wept. He's expressing, yes, the true emotional humanity of the Saviour. But more than that, he's saying to us, do you see how openly the Saviour lived his life in this world? Now, we have to be sensitive, don't we, and sensible. There are some people who would want to know every detail of your life. They're the last people you want to tell anything to. 
But you know, the next time a brother or sister says to you, how are you today? And you're almost tempted to trot out the usual phrase. Mine is, I'm fine. I'm okay. I've had a decent week. I, I never get excited about very much. My children say that. Does nothing ever excite you? I say, well, well I, I just wouldn't use that word. It's not part of my mental vocabulary. But the next time someone says to you, how are you? Take a deep breath and say, you know, brother, I've had a hard week. Prayer has been difficult. My heart's been heavy. This sadness came into my life. It might be the last time they'll ever ask you. They'll think, well, <laughs> I really wasn't looking for that. I remember almost the first time I was in the USA, I was sitting in a little cafe in rural Mississippi. A friend had taken me, was taking me around uh, different historic sites and went to this little cafe and this pleasant young waitress uh, says to me, how, how, how y'all doing? And I said, well, actually, I, I've had quite a difficult week. Well, she just looked at me as if I was from out of space. And my friend said to me, she weren't asking how you were. She was being polite. Jesus wept. Now, the only other time we read about Jesus weeping, of course, is in the end of Luke 19, where he wept over impenitent Jerusalem. As he saw the plight, the lostness of men and women, he was moved with compassion. It's a word that I think is almost impossible to translate, certainly into English. His whole inmost being convulsed within him. And he wept. Now, I'm making these three points simply to underscore how jealously the Gospels guard the true humanity of our Saviour. We must guard against ever thinking of our Saviour as a divinized man. There is a deep mystery about the union in Christ of the divine and the human. A profound mystery when the Council of Chalcedon in 451 came to explicate it. They didn't really explicate it. They simply used four negative adverbs. The union in Christ of the divine and the human was without separation, without division, without confusion, without admixture. They were more comfortable saying what it wasn't than what it was. But this we do know, and the narrative of the Gospels has no time whatsoever to pause and ask the question, how could this be? It's inexplicable. We are to shun speculation and be content to adore. This is the Jesus of the Incarnation. This is a Jesus who knows your struggles, who understands your pains, who has joined your frail flesh to his glorious deity. In Calvin's words, he has joined your flesh addicted to so many wretchednesses to his glorious deity. 
This is the Jesus who became incarnate in the virgin's womb. Well, let me make four applications or four highlight four uses that hopefully will encourage us. First of all, this truth should deeply encourage us. We have a saviour who knows our frame and who remembers that we are dust, who knows your frame, not by omniscient observation, but by personal experience. He has stood where you stand. He has been, and these are, I think, inexplicable words. He has been tempted in all points such as you and I are. He knows our frame. He understands the frailty of our humanity. The writer to the Hebrews puts it so beautifully, doesn't he? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a glorious encouragement it is to the child of God to know that there is dust, glorified dust, but dust on the throne of heaven. That there is one who has united himself to my nature, who understands me from within humanity. We have a compassionate high priest who carries us on his heart, who understands the frailty of our flesh. But then secondly, this truth should cause us to admire and adore. The New Testament is unconcerned about the metaphysics of the Incarnation because no metaphysic could begin to begin to explain the Incarnation. God did it. We are unembarrassed supernaturalists. God did it. Did it for his own glory. Did it for our salvation. Did it to exalt his son. The incarnation should cause us to bow down and adore. Who is like unto you, O Lord? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, doing great wonders. Lord, that you should have done that. That the uncontainable one should become contained in a virgin's womb. That he who is from everlasting to everlasting should become what he was not. This should teach us worship and wonder. That's why I I love those closing words in Romans 11. Paul has been expounding the gospel. And sometimes we are guilty, I'm guilty, of preaching the gospel, teaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, as if it were like a series of theorems. Paul comes to the end of his magnificent exposition of the gospel. What does he say? He says, oh, the depth 
of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. His paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Worship and adoration should be the native air that we breathe as we ponder the becoming in flesh of the Son of God, as we as we consider the true emotional life of our Saviour. Thirdly, it should teach us intellectual humility. Going back to Romans 11, who has known the mind of the Lord? Why are you a Christian tonight if you are a Christian? Not because you've got answers for everything. If you've got answers for everything, you're God and you're not. We're not Christians because we've got answers for everything. We're fundamentally Christians because the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. I think too often in my life, I've been reluctant to admit I don't know. And the older I get, I hope it's more than that, but the older I get, the more ready I am to say, I don't know. I'll go and think about that. I'll contact my friend Chad Davis in Bakersfield. He knows a lot more about these things than I do. Intellectual humility should be one of the primary principial marks of a child of God. Because we see through a glass darkly. And the inexplicableness of the incarnation just takes us out of all our comfort zones and especially all of our intellectual comfort zones and leaves us just marvelling. And that's good. That's healthy. What this world is looking for and doesn't know it is not so much that we give them answers for everything, but that they see Christians taken up in adoring wonder of the Lord God Almighty who has come to them in his son, Jesus Christ. And the fourth final thing, the true humanity of Christ should compel us to imitate that true humanity. Remember Paul's words in Philippians 2, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. We're called to live out the Christian life idiosyncratically. You're not me, I'm not you, you're not anyone else. You're to be the very best you that you can be. Within the the vagaries of your uniqueness, you're to live out a life that, yes, is lived to the glory of God, but a life that expresses God's grace in humanity. The emotional life of our Saviour Jesus Christ was rich and varied. It was not even and untroubled. And we are to be men and women who who don't pretend that we are more than we are. Who don't pretend that when 
unexpected providences come with crushing disappointments that we say, well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. He's brought it. Jesus said, now is my soul greatly troubled. We need to be men and women who exhibit in their lives a creaturely analogical reflection of the true humanity of our great Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so, yes, we, we jealously and rightly contend for the true the true full deity of Jesus Christ. But no less do we contend for the true humanity of Jesus Christ. There was a phrase in the early church, and I'll close with this. There's a phrase in the early church that meant so much to the great church fathers. The unassumed is the unhealed. If Jesus Christ did not assume all that we are, he could not heal all that we are. But we have a saviour who emptied himself. Himself he emptied, taking the form of a servant. He didn't stop for one moment being who he ever had been. Not for one moment. That's why I don't like singing the third verse of And Can It Be? Emptied himself of all but love. I don't like the next line either. He didn't empty himself in that sense. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by becoming one with us. And in our place as one of us, representing us as our covenant head, he fulfilled all righteousness. So as we look out into another year, May the Lord enable us all to rise to our privileges and to begin to begin to be the people that the Son of God loved and shed his precious blood to save. Let us pray. Father, who could ever have imagined in this lifetime or in 10,000 times, 10,000 lifetimes, that you would have found such a way to bring salvation to a lost world. In your wisdom, you found a way in your son to justify the ungodly. And though it meant him becoming what he was not, he did not shrink back from the humiliation, but embraced our frail flesh to himself, that as one of us, he might do what we could never do and die the death we could never die. All praise and thanks to God, the Father now be given, the Son and him who reigns with them in highest heaven, the one eternal God whom earth and heaven adore, for thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. Amen.